Welcome to The Bounce. I am Bob Lapine. The Bounce is a podcast produced by the Great Commission Collective. And if you're new to GCC, you don't know anything about the Great Commission Collective. We're a group of churches all committed to expanding the gospel by planting churches and strengthening leaders in local churches. You can find out more about the Great Commission Collective at our website, gccollective.org. I hope you'll check the Great Commission Collective out. The Bounce Podcast is all about helping pastors and church leaders remain resilient in ministry. And I think who we're going to be hearing from on this edition of The Bounce can be very helpful in that regard. Jim Newhauser is the director of the Christian Counseling Program at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He also gives leadership to the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. And I had a chance to visit with him not long ago talking about 16 people who might show up at your church who will tempt you to quit the ministry. Jim, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for joining us. I, I want to run through and review with you some of what you've identified as the, the kinds of people we're going to run into in ministry that will tempt us to to leave the ministry. And I'm, I should just ask, did you assemble this list from personal experience of your years <laughs> in ministry? <laughs> yes, I've been doing ministry for about 40 years. And another aspect is that I've been mentoring uh, men for over 30 years that my previous church in California was in the same town as a major seminary. So I always had seminary students, many of whom then went on to pastoral ministry. And now I'm a seminary professor. So sometimes the recent graduates come back with tears in their eyes. So, hmm. and yes, some of this has happened to me personally as well. You know, there is a passage in scripture that talks about having to clean out the barn. So I thought about that passage as I was thinking about this list of people. If anybody who gets into ministry thinking this is going to be glorious and uh, trouble-free uh, needs a wake-up call before they get too far, don't they? Amen. Yeah. Well, when you look at our Lord, when you look at Paul, you look at the prophets, most of them had detractors and they had opposition and they suffered. In in your examination of this subject and in your experience, one of the people you identify as the kind of person we may run into is what you call the demanding consumer. Uh, so explain what you mean by, by the uh, just saying that. I'm imagining pastors listening going, oh, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. They can put a name to that. Uh, they know the kind of person this is. What is the demanding consumer? I think many people come to a church looking for, they want to have all the right programs for their kids. They want singles ministry, if that's what it is. And I know for myself, our church in California had a couple hundred people typically. Our church now has a little bit less where I'm a member. And it's like you're the corner drugstore or the little neighborhood bookshop trying to compete with Amazon and Walmart. And people come in and rather than becoming part of the solution and starting ministries, they complain and leave. And I'm early on in my experience in California, we had a new church, less than 100 people, and a group of parents said they wanted to have a youth group. So I said, great, let's get all you parents together and let's you run a youth group. Well, I think every family but one that was in that meeting were gone within two months to churches that had youth groups. Yeah. I've had the experience, exactly that, of families who were with us in our church until their kids hit 10 or 11, 
And then they started to think, well, I want my kids in a vibrant, active youth ministry. Our, our youth ministry has about 15 teenagers who are a part of it, and we've got discipleship and activities for them. But these parents were kind of looking out for the churches that can do the big programs, the mission trips, the pizza parties, all of the stuff that, that a, a bigger church can do. Is it wrong for parents who have got young adolescents to be thinking, I want my kids to have the ultimate spiritual experience, and so we need to be a part of the bigger program where they can get the big, the, the, the bigger event? It's complicated because I can't bind someone else's conscience, and I can really understand if you're in a church where your kids are the only teenagers in the church, you'd want them to be around people their own age, and yet at the same time, you know, is if you believe in the mission and the message of your church, I would be concerned that some people compromise what the Bible says is most important about a church for things that are less important. Again, I get it as, as a parent, but you would also hope that people would recognize that we're in this together. And let's try to build something together to strengthen our church, because what can be really difficult is if you have a handful of people or a smaller group, and you're trying to make it go, and then they all leave. And the church I'm involved with now has kind of a challenge with lots and lots of elementary kids and not many high school at all. And I'm thinking, how can we manage this and how can we you know, strengthen that part of our ministries? So I think it's churches should be concerned about this, but there's a limit to what we can do. If somebody comes to you as a pastor and says, gee, we're frustrated because the church can't do this with the youth or you don't have this program I remember somebody coming to me one time as a pastor and saying, I wish we had an outreach to the homeless. And I said, I, I do too. I mean, I, this, it's a burden for my heart. Is that something you feel like the Lord is prompting you to, to get involved with and to do? And, and they looked at me shocked, like, no, I, I want our church to have it. I don't want to have to do it myself. Is there right. anything we can do as pastors with demanding consumers other than just tell them, that they they need to get their act together and and have have higher priorities than these consumer priorities. In general, I think the way to deal with a lot of the discouragement we have in ministry with people like this is to look at the people who are willing to serve, and not to try to bend over backwards, you know, doing all these things to try to keep generally dissatisfied people happy when they're going to probably leave anyway. But I know for me, it really helped a lot to focus on the 150 who were really really happy than the 12 who weren't. And to try to do a better job of taking care of them, I haven't had a great deal of success when someone like you described comes along and getting them to start those ministries. Although sometimes, I mean, great ministries do get started by people who under those circumstances, say, yes, I will do it. And I've seen ministries established that way. We had a wonderful nursing home ministry in our church. Somebody said, we ought to do this. We said, go ahead. And suddenly had a dozen people working with them in a nursing home ministry. So but I would all, I'd look for those people, I would encourage those people, and I wouldn't try to drive the consumers away, but I would not let them dictate my life. Hmm. That's a good word. You identify the uh, another person who will show up in our congregations, the dissatisfied spiritual widower, and I'm thinking this has to do with a person who left his previous church because he was unhappy, and now he's at your church expecting you to uh, solve all of his unhappiness issues, right? Right. Well, we do get people like that, but what I had in mind here was a bit different. And maybe it's because I was in Southern California. And so we had people who would come from to San Diego from mega churches around LA. I won't necessarily say which ones. 
and that was their perfect church. And some people come in, they were in a small church that was their perfect church. And they're always talking about their previous church. And my analogy would be that if the first wife died and the man remarries, there are pictures of the former wife all over the house. He's talking about her all the time. And so you get somebody like they're tolerating you, hmm. but you're not John Piper, John MacArthur, Kevin DeYoung, Vody, you know, whoever their <laughs> heroes are. And, and so, I mean, they're even like in the old days, they'd pass out the tapes or CDs. Now they would be sending <laughs> links to the rest of the church. Right. Here's what good preaching really sounds like. <laughs> and you feel like you never quite measure up to their expectations. And and you find yourself thinking, it, it, imagine a marriage if, if the, a widower is actually saying, I wish you were more like my first wife. I mean, that's not that's not a foundation for a strong marriage. And if that's the person who is in your church, it's just a pebble in the shoe the whole time, isn't it? Um, again, all these could be discouraging. And I would go back to the same theme is that there are people in your church whom, who, who love the church, in whose lives God has used you. And maybe if they went somewhere else, they'd be widowers. We wouldn't want them to be that way. But again, focusing on where God is working. And I mean, you still love these people. You hope they'll come around. Sometimes they do. But I wouldn't try to become John MacArthur or John Piper just to keep those people happy. Yeah. With, with all of these people who are frustrating sheep that we're dealing with, do we have to, as pastors, kind of harden our heart at some level toward their angst? Do, do we have to uh, have a little Teflon on us to continue in ministry? Well, probably is true. Spurgeon said we every pastor needs one blind eye and one deaf ear, mm -hmm. where I guess that would be, you know, some temporary partial disability. Uh, the scripture tells us in Galatians 1, where Paul is saying, am I trying to please men or God? And so I think, it's the fear of man that brings a snare. The one who trusts in God will be exalted, the proverb says. And so I think the focus has to be, I want to as far as I can to please the Lord. Of course, I want people to like me. Of course, I want people to be blessed. Of course, I want the church to grow. But I can't be focused upon people's reaction. Another glorious passage is Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. The paraphrase is, if you trust in men, you'll be like the bush in the desert. If you trust in God, you'll be like the tree planted by rivers of water. Even in the time of drought, will have a green leaf, will bear fruit in its season. And so if you're looking to people to bring you satisfaction in ministry, sooner or later, you're going to have a drought and you will dry up. If you're putting your hope in God, even though the dry seasons will come, and they certainly came in the life of Jesus and the life of Paul, and yet you can continue to flourish because you're not dependent upon men. You're ultimately dependent upon God. That's a good word for us. But one group you describe in in uh, your work is the people who you call the dating and waiting, the uncommitted <laughs> person. Explain that person to us. Yeah. Uh, the analogy would be, and I, we counsel a lot of uh, young people where, you know, this guy's been dating the girl for two years and he won't make a commitment. But you get people who come to church, some don't even believe in commitment, or others just like uh, they're, you know, they never want to really fully commit to the church. And sometimes they're looking for another church, okay? I mean, it's like, I'm just waiting for this kind of church to be planted, and then I'm off. Mm -hmm. Or until your church becomes what my old church was, 
And so you must have the sense that you're Mr. Right now while they're waiting for Mr. Right to come along. (laughs) Other difficulty is once they do find the church they like better or that church gets planted, they'll probably try to take as many of your members with them as they can. The the person who, and we've had folks like this, I remember when we tried to introduce membership or when we did introduce membership as a a part of the church after we'd planted a couple years in and we said, you know, we need to have formal membership here. And we need that because if we're going to practice church discipline, which we felt like we needed to do, we we have to have membership in place. But I, I remember speaking about being members of one another, the New Testament call to this. I also remember people coming up to me and saying, membership's not in the Bible, church membership. You know, we should all be, we, we should all just kind of be free to, to be uh, members of one another. There shouldn't be any formal membership. Uh, you've run into folks like that. What do, what do you say to somebody like that? Well, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that we should each be in submission to our leaders. Leaders are a defined group of elders in the church. So I would say, to which leaders are you in submission? By the way, it also says that you should do this so their work will be a joy and not a grief. People who want you to be, again, it's like someone who wants to live together rather than getting married. They want the benefits of membership without the commitment of marriage, of membership, And so I would ask them, who are those who are shepherding your soul? And that's the church of which you are a member or should be a member. And it brings them grief when you refuse to join. I also agree with your argument from church discipline. First Corinthians 5 says, put someone out. Well, if they can be put out, there's an in. In is membership. In is I'm committed to this local church. I'm in submission to the elders. Out is you've been put out. Those who refuse to join are effectively excommunicating themselves. And I do think also, by even with some of these categories of people, as I think a point comes as leaders when we need to tell people, like, like you would in a dating relationship, either commit, you know, fish or cut bait. Right. If, if our church isn't the church for you, I think you need to go someplace that you love and, and we'll miss you. But it's not appropriate to come and want all the benefits of membership without making the commitment. And, and I've said to some of these people, if if you were in a dating relationship and the person said, you know, we don't need a piece of paper, we can just have our commitment to one another, I'd be a little afraid of that person and, and what is their commitment phobia and try to gently figure out what's going on here. But say, at the end of the day, let's pledge ourselves to one another. It's not that you're pledging yourself to an institution. We are members of one another. Let's declare to one another that we're together on all of this. Amen. And and. I think there can be situations where people have been in spiritually abusive churches in the past, or they've been very fearful of membership. And sometimes those who've been through that need more time to get to know you and trust you. Mm-hmm. And we had lovely experiences with people who felt like they've been in an extremely domineering, inappropriate situations. And they said, we really want to know you well. We want to join, but it's going to take us some time to feel safe joining. I'm much more inclined to be patient with someone like that who's even pretty humble as opposed to someone who thinks they know the Bible better than you do, that they don't need to be members and they don't need to be. So, I mean, you know, obviously if you're smarter than I am, you probably need to go find some place where there's somebody at least as smart as you are. Let's talk about the perpetual malcontent, the person who is a complainer, a grumbler. And it's just, it just seems like every time they come up to you, you, your stomach kind of tightens up like, you know they're going to come up with their latest criticism about what's not happening or what's going on wrong here at the church. There are people like that among us, aren't there? Yeah, I was at a conference a while ago, and I, after every message in middle 
older middle-aged man would come up to me and critique my message. And usually, by the way, the criticisms we usually get is not what we said, but it's what we didn't say. Exactly. You should have said this. Okay, how long did you want to stay would be my question. But he came up to me. And then finally, at the end of the conference, he said, you know, I'm in this church and I'm trying to help the pastor and he didn't want my help. I said, well, I think I know why. First of all, are you by any chance a former pastor? Yes. How did you guess? <laughs> and then I said, well, I think that you know, the way you've come to me and I'm, you know, I'll never see you again, probably. So it's not bothering me particularly, but the way you're coming across isn't helpful. Mm -hmm. And so if that would be one kind. I mean, there are other people getting they want you to talk more about politics. They want you to address social issues. They want you to, you know, go against critical race theory, or they want you to be more sensitive to social justice. And, uh, you know, COVID was an example where you had sometimes three factions in the church. You had some who thought we were being too careful and we're bowing the knee to Caesar inappropriately and compromising. And we had some people who thought by meeting at all, we were going to kill everybody and, uh, none of them showed much grace in those two camps that we didn't know what we were doing. We we're trying our best with limited knowledge. It, it's easy to be critical. So, yeah, I mean, there can be the people who, when the budget meeting comes along every year, they're going to make a fuss usually about the pastor's compensation <laughs> package. And um, another aspect with this category is they'll often come and say not only – do they feel this way? But there are many other people who also feel this way. Now, they yeah. won't name those people, but <laughs> the, the, I'm a representative of a whole faction of the church who's ready to give you a hard time. Uh, I had a friend who called one person in his church, not to his face, but behind his back. Uh, he would call him Shimei, the guy that was, <laughs> you know, yelling at David and throwing stones on him. Uh, he called him, he was actually a Shimei, his deacon, that uh, anytime anything went wrong, this guy was going to be jump in and let people know. You know, I've always felt, uh, and I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on this, it, it has always seemed to me that the right posture of humility, even with our critics, is to at least ask the question, are, are you speaking through this person? Is this something I need to hear? Because I can be blind to things that I, I should not be blind to. And I can ask that question, really asking the Lord to search me, know me, to speak to me, and and whether this is a prompt from that person. And then I can walk away with a clean conscience going, okay, I think I'm doing what the Lord's called me to do, regardless of what the critic or the grumbler is having to say. Um, but but I think a lot of pastors, as soon as they, they have a, a critic come to them, they just automatically shut that person off and don't even consider whether this is from the Lord or not. Right. Uh, Spurgeon has a quote, a sensible friend who will unsparingly criticize you from week to week will be a far greater blessing to you and a thousand undiscriminating admirers, mm. if you have enough sense to bear his treatment and, and grace enough to be thankful for it. And so, you know, Proverbs 9, 8 says, if you rebuke a scoffer, he will hate you. If you admonish a wise man, he will love you. And so I actually kind of quote that verse to myself when I see somebody coming, and usually you can see them coming, you know, 100 feet away. Right. And that, you know, it may be that the Lord does. You know, that's kind of what David said about Shimei is, well, maybe the Lord sent him to do this to me. And so I want to listen humbly. And then another aspect, though, would be that the most critical person in the congregation is not the person, hopefully, that I'm primarily accountable to. Right. And when I would get 
criticism, you know, your messages are this or that, I would go to my fellow elders and they have care for the sheep. They're responsible along with me for the ministry of the word or the other decisions we make. And I'm going to weigh my, you know, the criticism I get with the wisdom that they offer. And, you know, sometimes their response will be, yeah, that person has something valid to say in spite of how they said it. And in many cases, it would be, no, we don't think that that was valid. We don't think the congregation at large feels that way either. But to have wise, mature men help you to evaluate what may be criticism from the least mature members of the congregation. Let's talk about the goats who fall away. And I noticed you, you identify them as goats and not as sheep who are falling away. Yeah, I mean, that's really devastating. Uh, you have people who come to the church, make a profession of faith, get baptized, and seem to participate for a while. And you know, there are hard verses in Scripture, but I'm so glad they're there, like in First John 2.19, where it says, they went out from us, that it might be shown that they were never really of us. And in, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, some will say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you, not that I knew you and I forgot you. And you know, there have been some very famous deconversions in the last couple of years that have been heartbreaking. And so, um, you know, you've had people, they return to their addiction, they return to their sexual immorality. Uh, and I've had these cases where, you know, the, you have the parable of the soils, we're told these things will happen, and yet you, you get all excited, celebrate a conversion, celebrate a change. And then people you know, go back. And again, the, the comfort would be, that the word of God warned me this would happen. Yeah. Jesus had Judas, uh, but it's still very, very sad. Yeah, Paul had Demas, right? Yeah. Demas, who, in, who loved this, this present world and, and walked away. And it is sad and it's hard for our hearts to hear that, but we, we have to recognize that uh, they stand before the Lord in, in what they're doing. And how, how vigorously do we try to go after those who have left, do you think? Well, those who have left, I mean, if they were members of the church, we would like to be able to resolve things. And sometimes the people who leave just went to another church. They're sheep. They might be right. sheep who bite. <laughs> and since we receive people from other churches and probably think that's a sensible thing those people did, <laughs> you know, if, if people go to another church, if it's a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, even if, you know, it's a Krispy Kreme giving whatever, you know, right. Starbucks and Krispy Kreme <laughs> is the attraction. You know, we just have to wish them well. I found that once somebody gets to the point where they tell you they're leaving or thinking of leaving, probably it's already game over. And the yeah. best thing you can do is just say, I want to make sure you find a church where you'll be shepherded, where you'll hear the word of God. And sometimes those people come back when they realize, you know, that it wasn't, the grass wasn't all that green or it was AstroTurf on the other side anyway. And so, but I think just when, when people leave in that respect, we want to have closure. Another aspect, though, will be often when they leave, they'll tell you their reason to leave, and they'll tell everybody else their real reason to leave, <laughs> and that will get back to you. But again, I think that's back to the blind eye and the deaf ear that Spurgeon describes. I think there's no point in chasing them down having an argument. My my concern my, would be, let's take care of the 99 who want to be here. We, you go after the one if you can get him back. Right. But, you know, I'm going to take care of the people who want to be here, who love the church and not invest a great deal of time in those who have one foot out the door or both feet out of the door. We, we want to have closure, but we can't control that. What do you do with the person in the church who comes to you and says, um, you know, I, 
I, I think maybe I'm called to teach. And yeah, and you think I'm not so sure I, I can assess that same calling, but they really have a passion and a desire. How do you handle that as a spiritual shepherd? Yeah. So my perspective would be that gets to the outward call. Mm-hmm. You know, many people who think they have an inward call to ministry, but that should be recognized by the church as well. I've I've heard a story about Spurgeon. I don't know if it's apocryphal, but it sounds like Spurgeon, where somebody came and said, well, the Lord told me I'm supposed to preach in your pulpit next week. And Spurgeon said, well, he didn't tell me. And so I think if God has called you to preach, he will tell the rest of the congregation, especially your leaders, that as well. And there are a lot of frustrated pastor wannabes who think they have a gift, but they don't have a congregation that wants them to serve. Uh, They tend to be pretty critical. Uh, they there, there can be, I mean, again, there's some people who desired ministry and they come into your church and they're just a great help and former pastors that can be, but some also come in and they're, they're kind of frustrated and they wonder, well, why is this church paying him to be a pastor and nobody will pay me to be a pastor? And uh, so I think we have to, as elders, we have to let people teach and preach based upon what we think will best edify the congregation and not these people who are pressuring us to give them opportunity my experience has also been that folks like that, if you don't give them exactly what they want, they go somewhere else hoping somebody else will give them opportunity. So I would want to get, to, actually, I would want to get to know someone like that for quite a while before I entrusted much to them. I remember a friend coming to me and saying, I really have a burden to teach. I want to do this. I feel called to do it. And I said, well, why don't you invite people over to your home for a small group and just say, we're going to study through this book. I'm going to be leading a study through it. Love to have you come. And I said, and your confirmation on whether this is the Lord calling you is not how many people show up, but how many people keep coming after that. Right? Yeah. And oftentimes it becomes the self-selecting situation where you give them a chance, you give them a runway and they they try and they learn on their own that maybe this is not what God had. The, the, the frustration is when they come back to you and say, you need to provide the crowd for me and validate what I'm doing. And um, so th- that can be a challenge. Some folks in our church are not just critical, but they sow seeds of division among the church. And that can be very frustrating for us as pastors. What do we do with that? Well, there are warnings in Romans and Paul, other epistles of Paul about divisive people. I think that's, again, where plurality of leadership is so important. Because if, if you're kind of the target of their criticism, it would be wonderful if you had fellow elders who could approach them and confront them rather than it being just you and the parties who are causing problems. But I think, again, our responsibility is not to defend ourselves, but our responsibility is to maintain the doctrinal purity, the unity, the moral purity of the church. And so if someone's disrupting that, I think, you know, the fact that, again, another passage I'm just so glad is in the Bible is in Second Timothy 2, where he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, and perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. And so, again, these things happen in the early church. They're happening now. They're going to keep happening till Jesus returns. And the scripture prepares us for that. It tells us what to do. But 
a point can come when if someone is sinfully divisive where it becomes a matter of, of discipline. But I do think that pastors get into trouble when they're defending themselves in these situations. Yeah. That that passage you quoted from Timothy is one that during COVID was the one I kept going back to. The Lord's servant must be quarrelsome. The you know and and just that mandate for us, I, I think that's 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 one of those verses we ought to have on a three by five card on our dashboard and just meditate on that every day. Yeah, actually, my statement is we ought to make them into plaques and put them up in our elder meeting room and in our offices as <laughs> kind of a life verse for those of us in ministry. You talk about what you call the doctrinal wolf. What is what is a doctrinal wolf? Yeah, I mean, most of the divisions we have in churches like ours are over things that aren't even that important sometimes. I mean, since COVID, it wasn't like the Bible said, thou shalt do this or that. But I have had experiences where people come in and two kinds of experience. One would be the worst case where someone came in as a full preterist and their interpretation of the New Testament is that Jesus came as much as he's going to come in 70 AD in judgment on the Jews and there's nothing else expected beyond that. Well, that's the very heresy that Paul warned against. And so we had to, and not only that, usually that's all they want to talk about, whatever the weird thing is. And so they were passing out stuff and holding Bible studies and often had, you know, little, you know, little groups that included people outside of our church. And so I've actually had that happen happen in two different churches. And I think that needs to be dealt with very firmly is a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and that's like a cancer. And so there can be, you know, the the denials of the fundamental doctrines of the faith, you know, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the the virgin birth, the inspiration of Scripture that I just think is intolerable, and we need to deal with, you know, ask them to repent. If not, they need to be put out. The other category is people who are doctrinally divisive over what can be secondary issues. Right. They come in and they've got their particular view of eschatology or they've got their particular view of the Sabbath. And we had an experience with a guy that had already been kind of, well, almost run out of a couple churches. Again, a preacher, teacher wannabe. And he came to us and we knew his history. We said, look, if you want to be in our church, it's a time for you to be influenced and taught, not an influencer who teaches. Oh, yes, that's fine. And we're really asking you not to promote your particular views. And he had a different view of eschatology and a different view of the Sabbath than many of us. It's a perfectly tolerable view. It's not heresy. It's just Christians differ. But, I mean, he hadn't been there two weeks, and he's passing out papers he's written to people he meets in church. And so the elders collectively sat him down and just, again, said, this is intolerable. You're not even a member of our church yet. And these are not the important issues that we want you addressing to people anyway. And he thanked us and told us he'd never do it again. And you're right, he never did it again. We never saw him again. Wow. And his departure was unlamented. <laughs> Gavin Ortland's book, Finding the Right Hill to Die On, has been helpful, uh-huh. I think, for all of us in identifying what are those right That's hills good. to die on. But then also to to reinforce that with our congregation, that when it comes to secondary issues, there's going to be charity and leniency, and we're not going to divide over those things. Uh, when it comes to primary issues, then we have to dig in and stand firm. I think that's that's wise. It just seems like some people who have a quirky view of something, just that's all they want to talk about. Right. And I've had you know people with a particular view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, or 
you know, other issues like that where, you know, if they held that view, okay, you know, we love you. You can be a member of our church, but you need to be gracious and patient with people who differ, especially if that includes all the elders. Yeah. Along with the doctrinal wolf, there is also what you call the decadent wolf. So is this just a person who is who is given over to to sin patterns that they're unrepentant of? Yeah, I'm especially concerned about influence. Back to 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so I was once overseeing or consulting with the church where they had a guy in their young adult group who had basically had serious relationships with three or four different women. They all became sexual, and then he dumped one and moved on to the next. And so, you know, other situation, we've got a kid in the youth group, and he's not only smoking pot, he's trying to get other people to smoke pot. And so I think, uh, I'm thinking especially of influence. Obviously, also, if someone is practicing drunkenness or theft or other such matters, we need to potentially address that through church discipline if it's not um, repented of. But I'm especially concerned of people who, who come in and they um, they could spread, you know, like the leaven that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5. And I think the examples of marijuana or you know, smoking pot and fornication are probably, I guess it could be pornography as well. And having others indulge in that. So you're looking for, I'm thinking especially of moral influence on others. Yeah, and, and in these days of gender confusion, there's a lot of opportunity for that to be something that gets uh, mixed into all of this. Excellent point. Yeah, I'll add that to my notes, actually. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> um, you you talk about the AWOL under-shepherded person, person absent without leave. Is that, since COVID, we've had a lot of people who are much less regular than they used to be and are still connected, still a part of our church, but we don't see them as often. What should our posture be there? Well, there are two different things are being addressed by what you said. Uh, I think that in some sense during COVID, we had respect that people out of conscience or their belief for their health were not coming to church. And we, a lot of people were live streaming. And so I think we ought to be patient, like Second Timothy says, and try to persuade them to re-engage more. That's always a challenge in church when you have people who are gone a lot and seem to be less committed. And, you know, if they're mediocre members, how much pressure do you put on to be more faithful? By the AWOL under shepherd, what I really meant was that this is somebody that you thought was in the trench with you. Oh, I got it. And suddenly they leave. Yeah. <laughs> and without warning or discussion, you just get an email saying, you know, I'm going to another church or I'm resigning and there's no discussion. And you think, I, I thought that if ever one of us was going to go, that we would talk about it and share the decision. Uh, it also can be confidence shattering saying, well, boy, if this guy who's been with me for 20 years doesn't want to work with me anymore, maybe I'm not any good. Uh, and then sometimes it's when things are really difficult. I've, again, these, I'm thinking of particular examples where a church is in a great deal of turmoil. There's division among the elders. And one guy who happened to be on my side, and this is now over 30 years ago, bolts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking, what are you doing? We need yeah. you. Yeah. And, and when there is a, a person who is active in ministry, well-known, high profile, and all of a sudden they are headed out the door, not only is there the questioning that we have about what are we doing right or wrong here, but there's also the, the buzz in the church among people going, well, wait, what do they know that we don't know? 
Yeah. And is, is there something I should be concerned about? Is this a stable place for us to be? And that can be threatening for us as pastors. It's hard. Uh, I visited a church a while back, and I saw a very, very well-known Christian who's not a pastor in a church, but he's a well-known Christian figure. And I saw, I thought, I, th- I thought he went to this other church across town. Oh, he left that church and came to this church. Well, I feel sorry for the pastor of the church he left. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, you know, what was wrong with our church? What was wrong with me that this very, very famous person would change? Yeah. And even for myself as a seminary professor, I don't take such decisions. I, I want to be especially aware that of uh, whatever decision I were to make, and I'm committed to my present local church, but I also keep in mind that you know, the more visibility you have, the more your commitment will affect other people. The disruptive nature of that. Yeah, that's important. Let, let's wrap it up by talking about the sugar daddy. Who's the sugar daddy? <laughs> yeah, the sugar daddy is the case. A couple of times I've known people where there's a small struggling church and one very wealthy man or a couple or somebody wants to plant a church, and but you, the, in both cases, you're for this for your economic survival as a pastor, mm-hmm. and for the church to have a place to meet, you're dependent upon this person financially, and it's exciting that wow we can do this, we can move forward. So that's that's positive, but then that person off people with money often don't play well with others, <laughs> and they often expect influence to go along with the money they spend. And then they often move from church to church. I've actually, again, there was some one, I dedicated my last major book to wealthy people who were productive in culture and have paid for me to teach in a seminary, teach in a church, do other ministries. So I'm very thankful for people who are productive. But there are some people who are productive, have, you know, move every couple of years from church to church, or the cases I know of a particular, particular, a couple particular cases where you know, something starts or something's trying to be renewed and then there's some conflict. And if the sugar daddy doesn't get his way, he and his money are gone. And now the pastor's high and dry. And so, again, many people wonderfully give their money generously, no strings attached. But some people like James too want the special seat of influence to go along with their gold ring. Hmm. As I think about all, I mean, we've run through a whole list here that that makes me as a pastor think, why does anybody want this job? And I can understand why over the last five years, there have been a lot among us who have said, I don't think I do want this job anymore. This is um, this is not what I signed up for. How, how would you encourage the heart of a pastor today who is facing one or more of these scenarios and starting to grow weary and faint in the middle of it? Yeah. A few things briefly. One would be, you know, Peter says in First Peter 4, we shouldn't be surprised by the suffering we're experiencing. And he's referring to suffering from the outside, but you have suffering all over the New Testament coming from our own people. Paul had people who, you know, had sinful motives for opposing him in Philippians 1 and Second Timothy 4, Jesus, the prophets, Moses. And so don't be surprised. I think another would be just you need to keep watch over your own soul, your own walk with God. It had that's back to Jeremiah 17, that you have to have your own relationship with God as the source of your strength and not outward success in ministry. Also, just recognizing that God is sovereign, mm-hmm. and that you know He will, if He chooses to bless, He will bless. If He chooses to give you a season of difficulty. 
that will be. I mean, great men. Jonathan Edwards got fired by his congregation. Calvin got run out of town. And so who are we to think these troubles will not come upon us? Um, Another piece of advice would just be also protecting your own family, shepherding your wife, your children. Um, Often a wife can be more affected, a lot of than the husband, and sometimes she's the one who struggles more with bitterness and anger than the husband does. Uh, and then yeah, Jesus said, love your enemies, to be to be kind, to be gracious, as we've already talked about, to be humble. And just recognizing in Acts 20, 28, where we're told to shepherd the sheep which he bought with his own blood, is they're not my sheep, they're Christ's sheep. And uh, I just have to leave that in his hands. And Part of it for me, back to where I was a long time you know, when we began the interview, is rather than to be grieved over a few who left or several who gave us a hard time, to be amazed anybody wants to listen to me preach or <laughs> counsel them. And what a blessing, not only do they want me, that they encourage me and I see lives being changed. And so focus on where God has worked in the past and where God is working now and not on the trouble. The one or two people make causing trouble will wear you out. I think the focus needs to be, where is God working and pour yourself into that? Is there a time when you ought to reevaluate whether this is what you're called to or whether it's time to leave? When when would you say to a pastor, okay, maybe it's not the right season for you to be in pastoral ministry given all that's going on? Well, I think the main reason to leave would be if biblically you're no longer qualified. Right. And some people who get burned out really lose. It also says in First Timothy 3 that it's a good work he desires to do. And so if the desire is gone and it can't be rekindled, then maybe you need to do something else. But I also would say that's a decision that should not be made quickly. If the Lord has entrusted this ministry to you, you know, I've, I've spent many Mondays wondering whether I wanted to keep going. And I just realized I need to ride that out. I think... I've had to talk several preachers, pastors off the ledge when things are rough and just don't make a sudden decision, seek wise counsel and endure through the difficult time rather than reacting emotionally to a hard time. Now, if again, seek wise counsel, if your fellow elders, if you have people you respect as mentors, if they look at the situation and either determine it's untenable and sometimes you know, pastors take a position in a church which just opposes them at every turn, and maybe they shouldn't have gone there to begin with. So in general, I want us to endure. You know, we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, Hebrews 12 says. But there could be, if in the evaluation of the church or mentors that you were not either sufficiently gifted or qualified to continue what you're doing, that could be a reason to do something else. It also, I've seen cases where the wife or the family are suffering so much and there's not a really a way out of it to stay in the church or in ministry where it may be even for a season, you do something else. Yeah. You can't, you can't put your marriage and your family at risk thinking I've got to stay in the ministry. You're I've said to, to many pastors, you lose your, your wife and your family. You're not going to have a ministry left anyway. So you, right. you need to stay focused on, on home base. And then beyond that, uh, let God continue to strengthen your heart in the midst of the adversity. Turn to him and ask him for, I, I think of all the Psalms I read where David was disheartened. My, my enemies are this and my, they're, out, they're attacking me on every side. But he always comes back and says, Lord, I find my hope in you. I can rely on your kindness, right? I think also that's wonderful. 
also the Psalms often look back on God's past great works of faithfulness in the midst mm-hmm. of trouble now, and usually it's the exodus to which they would refer, but just even when things are difficult now, and I think even helps to talk, well, let's talk about times in the past when it seemed really difficult and the Lord brought you through that. He's able to do it again. And so he, he's shown himself worthy of your trust. And not to not generally you you want to encourage people to endure, but there can be circumstances where the wise thing would be to step down either temporarily or to find another way to serve God. I hope that this conversation, the the impact it will have on the pastors and the church planters who are listening, is that they will hear us talk about some of these difficult people and will recognize I'm not the only one who is experiencing this. This is common among pastors, because sometimes we can think there must be something wrong with me that I have all of this going on. And we're just saying, no, this is just the, the life of, of ministry, and it's okay, and you can press through it and endure. I hope this will encourage pastors to endure in the midst of all of this. And Jim, I appreciate your insights. Thank you. It helped me make my talk better by some of the things you've raised. So I've made a few notes as we've talked, and if I give this in May as I plan to, some of your content will be there. Well, we've been spending time listening back to an interview with Jim Neuheiser, who is the director of the Christian Counseling Program at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. I'm guessing a lot of you who are pastors or church leaders were nodding your head as we talked about these sometimes challenging, difficult people who show up in our churches. But this is what God's called us to. I'm thinking again about how we're called to admonish the idol, how we're called to strengthen the weak and and to be patient with all. This is the call of pastoral ministry. And I hope the conversation today has encouraged you, given you fresh wind for your sails and made you more ready to face whatever is in front of you in ministry. We've got more information about Jim in the show notes here for the Bounce Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, Please like us or leave a review, pass word along to friends of yours who are pastors, maybe send them the link and encourage them to listen to this episode or any of our uh, previous episodes here on The Bounce. And speaking of episodes, next time on The Bounce, we're gonna talk about why apologetics are important for us as pastors and why we need to be training our people to be ready to give an answer for the faith that is within them. Neil Shenby is going to join us. Neil is the author of a book called Why Believe, and we'll hear from him about why apologetics really matters. That's coming up next time on The Bounce. 